From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Back at some of the very first Jesuit-run schools in the 1500s, teachers would work with students to put on plays. This tradition was called Jesuit drama, and it was seen as a fantastic way to accomplish a bunch of educational goals at once. The plays themselves were in Latin, so that helped the students learn the language. Plays required memorization and skilled rhetoric, which were both big values at the time. And the subject matter of these early dramas was Catholic morals and doctrine, so they were seen as central to religious instruction too. This rich tradition of Jesuits involved in theater has continued through the ages all the way to modern times, evolving and adapting through the centuries. One of the most accomplished Jesuit theater actors, teachers, and scholars is Father George Drance, and he's my guest today. Father Drance, who teaches theater at Fordham University, has performed and directed in more than 20 countries on five continents. He's also the founding artistic director of the Magis Theater Company in New York, which draws its name from that classic Jesuit word that means the more or the greater. I asked him about his dual vocations as Jesuit and theater artist, and a bit about the history of Jesuit drama and the parallels between theater and Ignatian spirituality. We also talked about how Catholic liturgy and drama are intertwined, and also some of his favorite projects through the years. Our conversation came on the heels of a powerful experience I had myself at a theater recently, and I asked him to help me unpack that experience, and why he thinks theater is an especially powerful art form. All in all, it was a fascinating conversation. We covered so much ground. But before we get to Father Drance, I wanted to mention quickly two different resources for the season of Advent we're working on here at the Jesuit Conference. The first is a daily email series called Ignatian Heroes. We have 25 fabulous writers offering short reflections on Jesuits and others who have been influenced by Ignatian spirituality. You can sign up to receive these reflections in your inbox at jesuits.org advent22. Then we're sponsoring a live Advent evening of reflection on Zoom. It's called Room at the Inn, an Ignatian Journey with the Holy Family into Advent. The session will be led by the fabulous iconographer and visual artist Kelly Lattimore and one of our favorite spiritual writers, Cameron Bellum. It's on Wednesday, December 14th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can sign up for free for that session at jesuits.org slash adventprayer. I'll drop both of these URLs into the show notes so you can head over at the end of the episode. Thanks for joining us. Well, Father George Drance, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if maybe we could start, if you could just tell me a bit of your story. How, how did you get to become a Jesuit theater artist? I was going to say, you know, Jesuit actor, but you're not someone who's acting as a Jesuit. You are really a Jesuit who acts and directs and teaches and does all those things. So yeah, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I did my undergrad at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm from Long Island originally, Long Island, New York, but uh, went to Marquette for my undergrad and got to know the Society of Jesus that way. Uh, I was there on an acting scholarship, so I was actually an actor before I was a Jesuit. And 
it was it was actually very interesting. In my junior year, uh, there were a lot of things that were very promising about my career, and uh, things were going very, very well in that regard. But I felt that I was becoming uh, not that great of a person. And sometimes uh, success will do that to you. And at that time, I... Uh, began to seek spiritual direction with some of the Jesuits that were working with us there. I was not only in the theater department, but I was also working as a residence hall advisor in one of the residence halls at Marquette. And so uh, Dan Schutte, the composer, uh, when he was a Jesuit, was actually my spiritual director for that year. Hmm. And so just seeing what he was doing with his talent in music and inspired by him and by many of the other Jesuits that were in the Marquette community at the time, I was wondering if if God wasn't perhaps offering me uh, an opportunity to do something similar with the talents that he had given me. So I began looking at the life of Ignatius, found a really great affinity with his story and my own, was really inspired by the work of the Jesuits, and decided to enter the novitiate after my junior year of Marquette. So uh, going into the Jesuits, I thought I was probably going to have to leave theater behind, at least for a while. Uh, but the more and more I was going to different places and the more I was assigned from one place to another, the one thing that kept coming back was that the people that I was working with were really interested in making use of my theater training. And if it wasn't teaching, it was doing some enrichment programs or Actually, in the court, in the case of when I was working in Kenya, there was a, a actually a small theater company that we had there. I also worked with Jack Warner in Teatro La Fragua in in Honduras, uh, which is I think still in Honduras in the entire country the only full time year round theater company. But it was started by Jack Warner, a uh, Central Southern Province Jesuit, who started in Olanchito with just as a way of giving kids on the street something to do. And it grew and it became what it is today. And I think the theater and and Jack himself were recognized as a national treasure in Honduras. So very inspiring people around me and seeing how the Jesuits were uh, attentive to that and looking at that. Uh, and with conversations with my superiors about my work, uh, they thought it was good that I would continue in this. And so I was given permission to do my uh, MFA at Columbia University. And with that, I got in touch with uh, the New York theater scene, uh, started working at La Mama, which is uh, longest running New York experimental theater company, uh, probably in the country. Ellen Stewart was the founder. She's an incredible figure and uh, she loved Jesuits. And so uh, we had a great relationship, and I worked on a lot of things with her. And so that's kind of how it all came together, was was first with that uh, recognition of there was something more to what the career itself was offering. And then when that was able to marry with my Jesuit vocation, it felt right. It felt like that's where the spirit was active and moving and inviting others to join in that. When you think of like stereotypical Jesuit ministries, well, maybe there's not, there's a few that come to mind maybe, but we know that there's so many different Jesuits doing all kinds of things. Um, 
but you think of you know high schools universities in the u.s philosophy theology uh maybe working on the margins how is how has theater become ministry for you how do you see those things together Sure. Well, actually, if you go back to the origins of the society, if you go to the formula of the Institute, that kind of foundational part of the constitutions, Ignatius basically says that the Jesuits are meant to help souls. And that is meant by means of teaching, public lectures, uh, giving the exercises. And then he has this wonderful phrase that John O'Malley picks up on in a lot of his writings, or any other ministry of the word. And so in a lot of the Renaissance humanism that came out of uh, the University of Paris, where Ignatius was educated and made its way into the school culture of the Jesuit schools at the time, there was this recognition that literature and public speaking and the arts, especially the theatrical arts, were really synthetic, brought people from all different disciplines together and uh, allowed the school an opportunity where on one common project, people from the history class, the rhetoric class, the Latin class, even the science class with the special effects and with the engineering that was required. Basically, the whole school got involved in this practical project. And we all know that Ignatian spirituality is very practical and it's meant to be put into practice and into doing something. Uh, the Jesuit theater became that in the schools. And that inspired many of the playwrights of the Spanish Golden Age, uh, Tirso de Molina, Calderon de la Barca, um, in France, uh, Moliere, uh, Corneille, Racine, all um, inspired by or influenced by, in one way or another, their own Jesuit training or some kind of uh, relationship with uh, the Jesuits. So the way in which the Jesuit schools were doing theater really infused European culture at large with this idea of Renaissance humanism, Ignatian humanism. And uh, some of these playwrights began to write uh, very poetic and theological, philosophical texts that we still consider today. We still look at in terms of the depth of the questions that they're asking and the, the breadth of humanity that they're trying to encompass. So in a lot of ways, that idea of the ministry of the word sets the tone for how Jesuit theater would be uh, a, a ministry that continues today. And I'm not the only one. There are, there are Jesuits who are working in it. Uh, Joe Hoover here in New York uh, has uh, a theater and film company. Uh, Bill Kane uh, writes for television and film. Um, there are other Jesuit actors who work around other uh, Jesuit theater companies, and certainly in the schools, that tradition continues. Uh, as a matter of fact, for the Ignatian year last year, uh, my own theater company uh, put together a Jesuit theater website so that people could really learn more about the tradition of Jesuit theater and find out uh, some links there are links to contemporary Jesuit practitioners who are working in the theater, uh, 
scholarly papers that talk about the history of Jesuit theater and its influence on culture at large and things like that. So it's a great resource. Do you remember as a young Jesuit who had also been an actor before you entered, like learning about that and seeing like, oh my goodness, this is like this convergence that you hadn't ever imagined maybe? It was really pretty incredible that when I heard that, wow, um, Moliere went to a Jesuit school. I mean, his his work is so... Uh, outrageous and bawdy and irreverent, and uh, but the central questions that he was dealing with in his satire were really questions that were central to the life of the church and what was going on in that day and age. Uh, I really hadn't known much about the Spanish Golden Age playwrights until later on, uh, but when I found Calderón de la Barca, I was blown away by the depth of his writing and the just the expansiveness of his theology and philosophy in the plays and the stories and the questions that he takes on. So yeah, it was really uh, quite uh, surprising, but very, very uh, encouraging connection that I found there. I I wonder too, so we have, again, you're kind of telling the story of how you know Jesuit ministry, being out in schools, especially, oh, seeing how theater could bring people together could be a powerful teaching tool. But for me, I'm also curious about, so Ignatian spirituality itself coming from the exercises, especially in the second week where Ignatius really invites you to use your imagination to enter into the story of Jesus and to walk where he walked and make yourself useful, you know, be there in the story in that that way that was at the time kind of uh, really groundbreaking uh, his spiritual approach. Do you you find that Ignatian spirituality itself in the emphasis on the imagination, spending time that way, getting into the story that way is also kind of connected to to the work that theater wants to do? Absolutely. Well, Ignatius himself would have been formed by the Corpus Christi dramas that were active in Europe at the time, and he probably would have been moved by the way in which a lot of the stories and mysteries were represented. So his use of imagination, and of course we know, uh, especially in these last few years where we looked at his period of convalescence and, and how it, how much it was his imagination about being a companion of Jesus, being sent on mission, that really uh, formed him during that time. Now, you know, with... Uh, with Ignatian spirituality and Stanislavski technique, it's very, very interesting. There's a funny story that Liam Neeson tells about when he was working on the movie The Mission. Dan Berrigan, who's a poet and an activist, was given a role in that. And uh, as they were talking about it uh, in the jungles of the Amazon, uh, Dan said to Liam, well, I think Stanislavski got it from the spiritual exercises. And now Dan would take poetic license being a poet. And it's one of those things where uh, I haven't been able to kind of confirm it with research that there was a connection. But certainly when the society was, uh, was um, suppressed, it was moved in a lot of uh, its ministries and a lot of people went to Russia where the society was welcome. And so it's not all that unlikely that Ignatian spirituality would have made it its way to a young Konstantin Stanislavski who's looking at the theater and who's looking at how the imagination works. But a lot of his principles, you know, whether or not that historical piece 
is accurate. A lot of the parallels are certainly very, very clear. Uh, Stanislavski talks about something called the passive imagination, where the first thing that the actor does is imagines the scene where it's going to take place. What is the room like? What is the decor like? What is the light like? So it's basically composition of place uh, that we learn about in Ignatian contemplation and that prelude. Even the the prelude that we ask in Ignatian contemplation of what is it that I want? What is the grace that I want? That's Stanislavski's main question for his actors. What do, what do you want? And that question gives the actor the objective. Uh, so once we're in that imaginative world and once things begin to form themselves, then uh, something else from Ignatian spirituality of the, the colloquy is very much like what Stanislavski calls the active imagination. So after the actor looks at the scene and imagines the place, the physical setting, then the actor asks, uh, who else is in the scene? Who else is there? And begins to imagine conversations, imagine different histories, imagine these colloquies that the, we have in the spiritual exercises or these conversations at the end of each comp contemplation, we would have a colloquy with, with Jesus or uh, with Mary or with any of the other uh, figures that might have been prominent in the meditation that we're just completing. So there's all of that that really happens in Stanislavski technique, the method that has very, very strong parallels to Ignatian spirituality. I work at the Actors' Chapel in New York, uh, St. Malachy's. It's on 49th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue. It's right across the street from the Book of Mormon, right next to Chicago. And the bells of the church, actually, every night at 7.30 play There's No Business Like Show Business. So it's uh, a parish that's woven into the Broadway community before the pandemic, and we're looking forward to a time where uh, we can restore this practice. We used to have an 11 o'clock um, mass at night on Saturday night so that actors who are just finishing their shows and the curtain coming down at about 1030 can come over to St. Malachy's, have their Sunday mass, and then uh, sleep in before their matinee, uh, spend time with their family on Sunday. So it's a great way to work with that community. Now, in my preaching and in, in my teaching, I, I try to look at something from acting technique or theater practice that has bearing on the readings or illustrates certain dynamics that are happening in the gospel or in the relationship between the gospel and the other readings. And so uh, it's a really great way to celebrate that connection between this very imaginative artwork, but then also an imaginative way of entering into spirituality. I was looking at so like this this history of the Jesuit drama, and it does seem like in schools early on, which again this goes back centuries, that the plays that they would stand up would often be like didactic, right? The whole point is to help form young people through this experience, and things have changed certainly in, the, in those centuries since. So um, there's not always, especially in I think modern theater, you don't have such a clear moral message that would be seen as maybe I don't know either old fashioned or overdone or 
too on the nose, but maybe more gray areas uh, in some of the work that you're doing. I'm curious for, for you, like, how do you approach that as a, again, a Jesuit in this space, not necessarily trying to say, like, oh, here's the like direct moral lesson we'll get at through this experience, but to uh, approach drama in a slightly different way than they might have done, say, centuries ago? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's part of theater's history that once you engage the imagination, the imagination is always going to push the boundaries. And if you look at the history of theater, we remember that Western theater, at least, started in the liturgy of the Easter Vigil, where Ethelwald of Winchester wrote these stage directions in the margins of his breviary, so that at the Easter uh, Vigil liturgy, when we're about to recite the quem queritus trope, um, quem queritus in sepulchrum o Christicole. Who do, who do you seek in the tomb? Uh, Jesum Nazarenum crucifixum o Chilicule. Uh, you know, we seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here, he's risen. So next to those lines in the margin, Ethelwald writes, let three ministers uh, wearing copes and carrying incense walk around as if they are looking for something, let another minister at the altar address them with these words. And so the first liturgical drama was born right there in the Easter Vigil. That becomes the the ministry plays, which then become the morality plays, this kind of didactic teaching that you're speaking of. But then what happens with them is as people depict uh the the ways of good and when people depict the forces of evil um, there's always this kind of real bodiness that happens and so when things happen too much with the demons as they're depicted on stage uh, they realize well it's probably not too good to do that in front of the blessed sacrament ever anymore so they move the plays out to the steps of the theater uh, sorry out to this out to the steps of the church into the courtyard and then that's where we get the cycle dramas the cart dramas and all of that but originally it was in the sanctuary once recognizing that you know this could be better and more appropriate outside the sanctuary it continues that way. So this kind of pushing of limits always happens. You know, myself, for personal choices, I actually, uh, when I was weighing what kind of roles would I take, there are certain things that I do. Uh, when I was in formation and working at the American Repertory Theater, I would go to my superior and I say, well, here's the role that I have. Here are the things that are really good about it. Here are the things that are a little bit pushing the boundaries. Uh, I just wanna to talk to you about that and we would have a conversation and we would discern whether or not it was appropriate to take this role. After a while of doing that, there were a number of roles where uh, my superior said, we've had several of these conversations. You've been formed in how to make these decisions. I, I really trust your judgment. So if you're asking me what, what I look for is I look for uh, something of redemption in a piece. And if it takes on questions, if it takes on things that are a little bit difficult or, or, or maybe not decorous, which is the word that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas uses about the appropriateness of that kind of activity for 
uh, for the church. You know, if once we get to the point of something not being that decorous, my question is, is there a level of redemption which makes it worth going there? If there is, I'll consider the project. If there's not, I just refuse the project flat out. And, you know, there are certain roles that I've turned down. There was a, a, a director in Paris who liked my work at La Mama and offered me a role. It was kind of a dream job. It would have been six months in Paris working in a, a, a theater company that had an excellent reputation. Uh, but the play was just uh, that genre of cruelty for cruelty's sake. And it just didn't seem like something that I wanted inside my heart and my mind and my soul for six months. So I said, uh, thank you. I, I, I have to refuse this. And he asked me why. And I said, well, there's absolutely no redemption in the script. And he said, well, we do that with the action. I said, well, yes, but if these are the words we're saying, I really don't see any way out of that. So that would be an example of some of the ways in which I do that. Now, by contrast, again, when I was working at the American Repertory Theater, I had the great fortune of working with Paula Vogel and Anne Bogart on a play that was about domestic violence and pornography, two issues which uh, we can't get away from, which are uh, kind of affecting people's lives in ways that many people would not like to admit or look at. But Paula's work was really asking a very, very important question about, well, why don't we consider violence as obscene as we consider pornography? And um, what is it about our culture that allows depictions of violence and allows that kind of I don't know, promulgation, if you will, of a, of a culture of violence. So I thought the question was a really important question to ask. And so my superiors and I felt that that was a really good project to work on. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Your discernment process is very uh, Ignatian to, to kind of go through that. And I wonder too, how that then um, leads you to your, your teaching. So I know maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, how you spend a lot of your time. I, I know you have a theater company that does all kinds of workshops and brings actors together and uh, and, and what you're hoping to do with that. So maybe if um, if you want to tell me a little bit about the, the Magis Theater Company and, and what your go goals there are, that would be great. Sure. Well, the company started with some classmates of mine from Columbia who were wondering, well, what do we do now that grad school is over to continue this kind of training? And it's really more of a European-style formation. We had a, a lot of great teachers from all over, but the kind of techniques that we were considering and really looking at are not something that you would find a class for at a studio in New York City. So I said, well, why don't we do it ourselves? So we started to getting together, and um, and the theater really was a way of having a space for us to continue that training, that exploration, that experimentation. And that's what, what Magis continues to be, is a, a home base for actors that are really serious about their technique and really want to engage in this, what we call threefold mission, to teach, to train, and to act. Many of the people in the company are teachers themselves, and so they find that our weekly work together inspires them to make connections for their own teaching. Um, when we train ourselves as actors, we're engaged in a lot of these 
very imaginative, discerning, questioning practices that would lead us to a deepening of the spiritual life. And uh, many people have said that they find it a very spiritual way of working, uh, the way that we work as a company. And then in our own performances, we choose lesser known pieces from the past and from different cultures that still have something to say to us today. We consider several projects at, the, at, at once, and then we begin to read them together, bring them into our training, and then we look at what's happening in the world. And we wait to look for resonances, and we say, well, it seems like the energies are working around this particular piece, so let's devote the, our um, our attention to that for the next season and let's make that our next production. So even our choice of material is has that element of discernment about considering and looking at many things, but then awaiting confirmation as to what's going to be the right project for us. So the techniques uh, I use in my own teaching at Fordham University, other teachers use them where they go. And then I also use them in some of the initiatives that we have at La Mama Experimental Theater Club, one of which is called the Trojan Women Project, where we take a La Mama production of Euripides Trojan Women that was adapted by Elizabeth Suedos, the composer, and Andre Serban, the director. Kind of a a landmark production for experimental theater and uh, a re-examination of the classics at uh, a visceral level of the sound and of the impact of those stories that's not really on a cognitive level. And to reach that, they wanted to explore the ancient languages. So uh, they first started with Medea and Electra and did those in ancient Greek and in Latin. And when they got to Trojan women, they started to make a synthetic language, very much like the work that Peter Brook was doing with, with uh, his project called Orgast at the time. And so this production really examines uh, the sounds of ancient language and how that has an impact on people. Now, what we found is because it is a language that no one speaks, uh, Ellen Stewart, the foundress of La Mama, was interested in finding a language that everyone could understand because no one speaks it. So no one had an advantage. No one had uh, a kind of a, a superior position in terms of being able to understand what that was. But you people from all over the world standing next to each other had a kind of an emotional impact from this. Working in that way, uh, what the Trojan Women Project does is we go to places that have had a history of violence based on differences of culture, based on differences of language. We were in Guatemala for two years and uh, working with both Spanish-speaking peoples and uh, people who spoke Mayan dialects. And very often, those two groups don't get together, partly because of the language barrier, but also partly because of the animosity that's left over from things that still have not been settled from the Civil War and from the massacres that happened, uh, the atrocities against the Mayan people. So, uh, But we had people from both groups working in the same room together using this other language. Uh, same thing in Kosovo when we were working with Albanian speakers and Serbian speakers. So it was a way of people from two sides of a conflict to meet on neutral ground and uh, to really get into the experience of war through this look at the War of Troy. And uh, 
and then reflect on their own situation in a way that perhaps had a little bit more distance or a little bit more perspective. Mm. That's fascinating. Now, you've mentioned so this story in the context of working with uh, La Mama Experimental Theater Club, uh, founded by Ellen Stewart. That was something I, I learned about in preparing for our conversation. I talked to my brother, who's a composer in New York, in the theater world, and he's like, you're talking to someone who works, who knows them and connected. He, he says they're pretty much like, for people who don't know, they're like the the experimental theater place, maybe in the country, if not even beyond uh, working in English. So I just thought we could t maybe take the, the moment to tell us a little bit about La Mama and, and Alan Stewart in your relationship with her and, and why they're such an important place uh, kind of in the history of American theater. Sure. Uh, well, Alan Stewart was a fabulous, uh, amazing person, amazing artist herself. She was uh, the first woman of color to be a designer for Saks Fifth Avenue. Um, I could go down the list of firsts, but it would take us uh, forever. But uh, she put up with a lot uh, that was going on at her own time to really believe in herself and believe in her work. She felt that she was surrounded by people who allowed that to happen. Uh, one of whom was a man uh, who owned a fabric store on Orchard Street called Papa Diamond. He was a, a Jewish cloth merchant. And whenever he found interesting scraps, he would put them aside for Ellen. And uh, one day he told her, this was at the time where things were really just solidifying around the time of Papa Diamond and even before Ellen, where that area of New York was not so much buildings and markets indoors, but push carts outdoors. You know, people would have all kinds of things on their push cart and they would push it around and sell it to whoever they could, very old world style. But he said to Ellen, you have to get a push cart, uh, but you're going to push it for others. You're not going to push it for yourself. And um, those words came to her when her friends in the neighborhood were not getting their work done. And so she said, well, I'll do it for you. And so she began to push the the push cart of La Mama. Now her friends are people like Sam Shepard, Lanford Wilson, uh, Harvey Firestein, Wallace Shawn, uh, Edward Albee. So names that are kind of synonymous with uh, real uh, forward thinkers in, in the theater and people that are have become pillars of contemporary American theater would not have gotten their start was it not for Ellen Stewart and her vision and her generosity. Uh, again, I, I could never do her justice uh, with my words, but uh, it's, it's tremendous the number of careers that she launched. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking of the Trojan women and uh, Diane Lane uh, before she became Diane Lane, was uh, a, a, one of the children in that first production of Medea and then uh, in the Trojan Women. So uh, the connections to La Mama and the way that uh, so many people have a foundation and uh, formation happening at La Mama is really a tremendous gift, not only to the experimental theater, uh, but also to the world theater. Ellen was always interested in bringing people from all over the world uh, contemporary directors that would not have gotten a view someplace else in the United States had she not sponsored them. Uh, she was 
a, a persona that had a lot of class and a lot of charm. And so on the world theater stage, she was this very, very popular impresario and people wanted her work at their festivals. And so La Mama created this huge international network. Um, when I was in graduate school at Columbia, I was studying with Andre Serban, who was the director that first did uh, the Medea Electra and Trojan Women in a production that later became known as Fragments of a Greek Trilogy. So began working at La Mama through him and through his work. Uh, the, the current artistic director, Mia Yu, who uh, took over after Ellen passed, was a classmate of mine, and we first did a production uh, after my first year of grad school in the summer where they needed to replace an actor, and she thought that some of my background might make me a good candidate to uh, step into that role. Now, in order to do that, I had to do one of Ellen's shows too because this tour was not only this play, Yeranos, which is about the story of the labyrinth, but also um, Ellen's production of Oedipus. And so the way Ellen auditioned is she didn't have you do a monologue or she didn't have you do that. She would meet you at her dining room table. And uh, if, you know, if she got right there at the kitchen table, if she got what she would call her beeps, if she, if she felt that, uh, that you were someone that she could work with, she would kind of lay it out and let you know what it was. And then you'd work with each other for a while. But uh it was a really great experience just to learn from her, to see the kind of work that she she did. It really changed my life as an artist and opened up so many other things for me. But also, uh, she was very interested in my priesthood, and she was always very, uh, very upfront and very challenging. And uh, really, uh, there was one time where we were uh, on tour, and... I said, you know, Ellen, it's it's Sunday and, and we're still driving from Sicily to Istanbul and I'm not sure <laughs> that we're going to have time and um, it's a little bumpy in the back of the bus. So I'm, I'm wondering if on lunch break, if we could have just a little bit more time so I could say mass. And so she turned around on the bus. She said, everybody, we're going to have mass with George. <laughs> so, so we pulled over. We found a, a roadside table and we all celebrated mass together. But things like that were really magical and, and beautiful and spirit led as far as I'm concerned. There was a time where I was working with her in Italy and um, there was a, a man in the company who said, they tell me that you're a priest. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, before you go back to America, I'd like you to hear my confession. I've been away from the church for about 17 years, and I think it's time that I go back and you seem like someone I can talk to. So um, because this work kind of brought me in places where there are people that might be on the margins of the church, uh, it also provides an opportunity to reach out to them and to be companions with them and to mm. accompany them. Well, thank you for, for sharing that story. And <clears throat> I was wondering um, if you could help me as our last thing maybe here, as we reflect on this and those experiences you had and meeting people who changed your life and on, on your journey. Um, I had a very powerful theater experience recently. And it was just a reading of a play, The Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which was like a big Catholic circle play a few years ago. I was at this Catholic Imagination Conference in Dallas, which is a bunch of Catholic writers and poets and 
people. Uh, it was this incredible experience. It was just a reading of a play. It wasn't even the full, and it was just, it was students from the university there and recent alumni. And I just found myself like totally like wrecked by it emotionally in this, but this way that was questioning and came out thinking. And I, then I started thinking and processing this, like I can think of like six or eight theater experiences I have had as a theater goer that I can remember like almost physically that has stayed with me in a way that I don't for my favorite movies or even concerts, which I, I love music or books. Uh, I love books, but there's something about theater specifically that I can feel almost viscerally years after those experiences. And I come home from that conference and I'm buying plays to read and I'm buying a book about how to write plays. I'm just, I've caught this, like, I don't know what it is, but I'm like interested in what is happening to me right now. And so curious to you, for you as someone in this world and in the spiritual world as well, like what about theater makes it that way that um, it has this special power it feels like in your experience? Why could you help me process this? Yeah, I, I, I talk about it a lot with my students, actually. And it's the difference between like theater and television or theater and film. A lot of the same techniques are going on, a lot of the same principles. People are, are moved by, uh, by television, by film as well. But there is something about being in a room with real people that are going through this in their own instrument, in their own organism at this very moment that is palpable there's a there's a, a devotion of all of your energy to creating this piece and there are resonances i think because of that that happen in the room um you know i'll i'll tell a story about like probably the best example of why it works uh when i was in regency in kenya uh, there was a group of people at the trade school that wanted to do a production. So we got a theater company together. We started touring. It was a very successful thing. We looked at what we might do next. And um, one of the things that I threw out there and that we wound up doing was a production of George Orwell's Animal Farm in Swahili. Now, at the time, there was a lot going on with the presidency of Daniel Arap Moy and uh, the, the country was still a one-party democracy at the time. There were a lot of parallels to what was happening in Animal Farm with certain things that were happening politically. Uh, it was a successful production. We did it in schools. We did it in our own space. And then we got a grant from the British Council with the George Orwell angle to do it at the National Theater in Kenya. And while we were doing, uh, getting ready to do that, we had to apply for a license from the Department of Inland Revenue. It's a very convoluted way of doing it. But I would go in every day, I would wait for the license. And it felt like a Samuel Beckett play, because at the end of the day, they would say, well, Mr. Drance, it doesn't look like the license is ready today, but you're certainly uh, welcome to come back tomorrow. And so this went on and on and on. <clears throat> so I knew something was up. But I really didn't want to give up. I felt I owed it to the students and owed it to the, the people in, in the community. And so at one point I, I said, is this normal? Uh, does, is, does this process happen this way? And by this time, uh, I had gotten a good rapport with uh, the person who was at the front desk. I, I, I learned Swahili, so uh, that was a, a big leg up on a lot of things. And, um, and he said, uh, well, Mr. Drance, you have to understand this is a very sensitive piece of literature. And I said, well, it's on your school reading list. And, you know, the mission of our company is to help students with 
pieces of literature that are on the reading list. And then he looked over both shoulders and he leaned into me and he said, yes, but there's a difference between reading this story a chapter at a time between your history class and your science class and seeing the entire story played out in real time by your own countrymen in your own language. He said, that's what they're afraid of. Mm. And I think that really testifies to the power of live performance and why theater does exactly what you're talking about, really entering into our, our hearts and, and our experience on a very different level. And that's not entirely disconnected from your reflection earlier about drama and liturgy, uh, that there is something I feel like was certainly missed in the, the pandemic. And and I, I, there, you see those again, those those parallels uh, that that being in that space, and then in a liturgy, believing that it's not just a bunch of people hanging out together, but that there's something happening to those people. Um, it's being shaped and formed, and I think you could feel that in the room at this production, uh, this reading uh, in, in Dallas. Something was happening to the people there. It wasn't just this passive reception. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So I, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep exploring this and going down this pathway um, in my own journey here. But I appreciate your taking the time to to help get me even more excited about this and uh, taking the time to share what what you're doing. And we'll share in the show notes links to to Magis and uh, to some of the the things you described. Um, but yeah, Father Drant, thank you so much again for for taking the time. And uh, it was a really interesting conversation. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.